Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Um, beautiful women, I don't see an invitation. Did it go to Marco Polo? Now we need to become like a little... Yeah, well, like a group. Now how to do that. How do we group us together? Saren, figure it out. <laughs> I'm figuring it out right now. <laughs> Start a group. Oh, I did it. I did it. I did it. Uh, you did? I did. <gasps> Check it. You? Check it. Smarty. I know we're here. I just did it. Guys. Okay. So oh, I just sent it to the wrong person. Now we're a club. Saren Cho-, Cho left the group. What? Saren. I'm still here, I think. <laughs> At the top. Look, this is the podcast. Reactions to technology. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome to another Stages podcast. Today, we have someone who I'm just starting to get to know on a personal level, and I feel really blessed that that's happening. And in life, most things happen in circles. So I will tell you that I have stood before this woman and said my lines and sang my songs and prayed to the casting gods that she would take note and, as they say, keep me on the table and maybe offer me a job. The woman I'm introducing is Tiffany Little Canfield. She has been with Bernie Telsey Casting for years and years. He entrusts her with all things now, West Coast and L.A. casting, as he should. She casted The Greatest Showman, the, the Rent movie, which I loved. She's been Emmy nominated for Fosse Vernon. And she's just this remarkable woman who I thought would never leave the claws of Manhattan and East Coast. And she's returned home to Northern California, raising her twin boys. And she has spoken so much to the different stages of life. And it resonated with me in such a way that I wanted her to share that knowledge and her experience. Please welcome Tiffany Little Canfield. Tiffany Little Canfield to stage, please. Tiffany to the stage. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You too. Well, the last time we saw each other in your backyard, socially distanced, I'll tell you, Mary Lee, I thought, oh, she invited us to brunch. How beautiful. I'll bring some tulips and some, you know, grocery store made cinnamon rolls and that'll be great. <laughs> and I get there and it is fine china and beautiful linens and fresh flowers sit at the table and delectable pork and a spare. I mean, it just was, don't underestimate this woman is what I'm telling you. Did you manage to cook all of that with twin boys? I can't take credit for it. I have an amazing partner who is my best friend since high school. We've fallen in love in Northern California <laughs> and he and I both love to entertain and have people over. This was a really tough year for us extroverts. <laughs> and um, so we take any chance we can to have just a lovely thing. So he he cooked. Yeah, he cooked. That's yeah. nice to have a husband who can cook for you like that. <laughs> How old are your twin boys? They just turned 10 in April. And they're quite different, the two of them. 
yin and yang, they are so different. It's, it really questions the nature versus nurture ideas that I had previously held. And when you look at them, do you say, oh yeah, he's been just like that since he was many, 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 or have you seen them evolve or you kind of knew the core of these little humans, even when they were infants? It was almost from birth, you could see the difference in uh, life perspective from them. And so they have definitely evolved, but it's the core is there and the, the essence has not changed at all. Now you use words to me that I listen to as a mother, but then as an artist, I also listen to and think, I wonder as a casting agent, if someone walks through the door, if you feel similarly, if you can see their core or their essence before they start saying the the lines or before you see their tape at the end of the day and decide whether to submit or not. Yes. Well, actually they, you know, they, that is a, a statement we say your audition begins when you come through the mo- the door but you know i i hear that what what happens when you come through the door is the first impression first impressions happen to us as humans all of the time you know like it, immediately upon meeting anyone going to the grocery store you know going to buy a car going to to do everything we have a first impression and we get a sense from each other's energy so that does happen and sometimes the person's natural essence, energy, story, natural storytelling, you know, the story that walks in the room with them as a human Mm -hmm. might not jibe with the character of that piece, but it doesn't say anything. I don't get any information about their abilities from that. I just Mm -hmm. might get that again, first impression. So I compare it to like online dating, where you have seen a picture of the person, you've read something that they wanted you to read about themselves, in case of the actor, it's the resume. And then when they walk in, you just the same way, if you're sitting in a, you know, olives at the WU in Union Square and meeting someone <laughs> for a cocktail, when they first walk in, you think, yes, they look like what I expected. They seem like what I expected. Because you do have an expectation based on that little bit of information you get before the meeting, or you think, hmm, not quite what I expected, but in the zone, they look like their picture. I'm not sure. Or you have a, wow, this person does not seem like the information I had before. I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm not sure if they're right, you know, in the dating metaphor for me or for the casting for the part. But then the date is the audition, right? So the audition, you've, I think we've all been on a date where we have that initial first reaction, like, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wait, no, they kind of have like a little Seth Rogen vibe. No, I, they're funny. I'm really starting to jibe. And then you would go on the second date or the callback. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it's kind of all together, but it is meaningful when you first walk in because no one can ignore a first impression. So how have you been doing that over COVID without being able to feel that person's vibe, to feel that person's energy when they walk in the room? Everything's video. So it's it's more tailored, more edited. How can you really get a sense of that? I think you can even get it in a slate. Hmm. It's why I talked when I teach, I tell actors, don't do a Stepford slate. Don't do a poised rehearsed slate. Just be natural. Because one, it's the first moment you see them. So you definitely don't want to feel something inauthentic from the first moment, especially on camera, because on camera, it's a truth machine, right? Like it can see inside your impulses, inside your eyes. So I always say just be complete. It's just a marker. It's just an introduction the same way coming into the room. 
So you still do get it. And we've also been doing Zoom auditions. And in Zoom auditions, you can get a vibe of the person in the same way that a person does when they're watching the television show or watching the film. Very true. How long have you been casting? I started in July 2001. And before that, you went to school. You went to the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And what was your major there? I got my BFA in directing for the theater. It's kind of crazy because I moved to New York. I was very intimidated coming from Northern California. You know, I don't have any family connections there. I don't come from a family with, you know, plenty of loving emotional support, but not financial support. So I was very scared. So I moved and just got a waiting table job right away so that I could feel like I could stay here and figure out like, what do I do on a bad day? What do I do on a good day? So I could build a home a little bit. At the time, I thought I was taking this major risk to, you know, wait for three months before I looked for a gig. Of course, now in the scheme of things, I'm like, that wasn't very long. And then I started to look for a way into the industry because I had to be honest with myself. I knew who the famous directors were, but I didn't know how the system worked. I was used to West Coast where there might not even be a casting director. So I wasn't even really sure about casting at all. I just looked at the internships that were available on playbill.com, you know, like at the roundabout or the public, it was my goal to work at the public and several had casting and that sounded more interesting and more creative than development, which those were the main internships available. So I applied for several, got pretty far on some of them and then saw an ad to assist. It wasn't really an internship. It was a weird you know, it was unpaid stipended, but it was working on a specific project, uh, which was Baz Luhrmann's production of Puccini's La Boheme on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I was going to be like an assistant. I had seen half an opera, but I had in seen- In your lifetime. In your lifetime. In, lifetime, you had seen- <laughs> yep. in Winston-Salem, North Carolina as a school assignment and left in intermission and <laughs> ran into my dean in the parking lot. So I was totally caught. Totally caught. <laughs> And so, but I had seen Moulin Rouge seven times in the theater. So I thought, let them tell me no. So I sent, you know, I applied for that and I ended up getting that. And that was my, and it was at Bernie Telsey Casting, working with the casting director, Heidi Marshall. And the two of us just jumped right in. It was just us two and an intern. And I was like, who knew this was a job? I, I really fell in love. So do you ever still think about getting into directing or this was it? I loved it. I thought I might do what Heidi did because what happened with Boheme is Heidi and I um, were working on it. And then Baz actually hired Heidi as his associate director hmm. for the project. So she transitioned before the casting was done. She went to work with Baz and I took over casting the show. And so we still worked together, but in different um, roles. And I thought, oh, I'll do what Heidi did. I'll I'll do this and then I'll develop a relationship with a director I really respect and then Mm -hmm. I will go there. And then when I felt that I had made that connection, I realized I like this role because I love the multitasking aspect of it. Switching my filter, as it were, from a TV series to a film to a musical to a, you know, play 
with Richard Jones, you know, to an opera. Like I really enjoy that. And I know that for directing so much is like diving into one project and one text for potentially multiple years. I just don't know if that's my journey. Are you like that in other aspects of your life? Do you want to redecorate your house all the time? Do you find you get bored if you stay in one place too long? Are you like that always? I love change. I love spontaneity. That was one of the hardest things about leaving New York. New York was, again, as soon as I got there, it was like, where have you been all my life? Like, I love that energy. I love change. It's interesting to know that your day is full, to know that there was this multitasking happening in your life, and then to make space for creating a family, which all it is, is complete multitasking. And I say the juggle, I don't want to say the struggle, but the juggle is real. So for you, when did that happen? Was it planned? Was it a gift that, you know, went, now you're going to be a mama? And did you have the bandwidth to say, I got this? Or was it sort of a process that you had to learn to understand both the professional and the private life? It was actually a funny story because I knew I wanted children. You know, I was living that workaholic New York life where I, you know, I lived with my brother who had moved out in 2003. We had so much fun. You know, he, he gets sports tickets. I get theater tickets. We had a fabulous, amazing thirties. And then in my (laughs) early, you know, 33, 34, I was like, wait a minute, when am I going to have a baby? And I could not meet a man. If I got a train, a plane, I'd meet someone, but I would never meet anyone in New York. And I, decide, oh, I'm going to have a baby on my own. So I actually went through like um, just artificial insemination. I didn't do the whole IVF thing, but like just artificial insemination. And on my second try, (laughs) when I wanted to get to the airport because I was casting a film in Miami and had to fly and I felt like the wait was too long at the clinic. And so as soon as they finished, I sat up and the nurses had to remind me to lay down and relax for 10 minutes. I thought maybe this is not a great idea. (laughs) Right. I don't have time to marinate. I got to go. I got to go. Not take 10 minutes to listen to a Beatles song and hopefully impregnate myself. I maybe should rethink this. And so I kind of went, Let's shelf that idea. And then I met um, actually my brother's friend at Thanksgiving at my house. We had a Friendsgiving and I met my kid's dad and we really, he's much younger than me. So I was like not interested because I thought he, you know, wasn't ready for what I wanted, which was kids and, you know, stuff. But he told me, he was like, you know, in all of human history, a man of 25 wants to get married and have children. That's actually normal everywhere except in New York. (laughs) So he was like, that is what I want. So I said, okay, well, so we got together. And then I sort of early on, we we knew what we wanted. And I thought it might require the magic of science because I was by this point 36 and never had accidentally been pregnant Mm -hmm. or anything. So I thought, you know, let's get started. First try pregnancy. Wow. Not any science, just first like I might be ovulating this month. And little known fact for all people listening, if you wait, your chances of having twins naturally goes up. I don't think people realize that. (laughs) Did you have twins in your family or did your husband or? 
know your chances, you start to naturally hyperovulate. When you hyperovulate, wow. it means great two eggs a month. It happens. Like look in a lot of families that have many, many children, often towards the end, they have a pair of twins because it's your body. It's biological. I had my son at, I was 39 when I had him. And if I had had twins, I would not have survived the whole process. <laughs> that, but honestly, I think it's surprising. Well, I also had Bo who was just out of grad school. And so our whole plan was I would work and he would be the primary caregiver. So it, it actually kind of just set up Stephanie to talk about that, that juggle. We really kind of had a weirdly traditional just role reversal lifestyle. There's first couple of years. We're kind of told and groomed that you can have everything as a woman. You can just not all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I remember having brunch with you and looking at you and driving home with Sebastian and saying, she has made choices in her life that has allowed it that she has all of it at the same time, at least from the outside looking in. And I feel like you crafted that life for yourself. And I think that is something we are trying to put out into the world that, you know, yes, be in the moment. Yes, stop and, and, and take stock and all of the beauty around you now. But there is great charge and great blessings when you say, I'm not going to necessarily manipulate, but I am going to plan and I'm going to work toward and I'm going to live in truth going toward what I want. Well, it's what you have to do is be comfortable with things being different than maybe you expected. You know, my role as a mother is different than a lot of people's roles as a mother, because I'm more, I joke, you know, especially with Stephanie, the move to, to the West coast to open the West coast office for Telsey. That was something my kid's dad wanted. I thought, how am I going to live in Sacramento? Cause I'm the, the worker, you know, I work and there's not work in Sacramento um, for me. So I made the decision that I would commute to Los Angeles for work every week. So I sort of was like a 1950s traveling salesman type person where I show up on the weekends to be a parent. And that is not, so I don't know if I'd consider that having it all in the way that people think they want. Okay. I think what I did was I was open to having a different role and redefining what it means to be a mother what it means for my kid's dad to be a father, what it means for my children. And so I do think that it's, I don't, I view it somewhat as a sacrifice, but I also look at it as an opportunity to keep discovering what this role even means mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's not what I had, you know, as a child. Yeah. And I think you have to be really clear about what you want, which I don't think a lot of people are. I think sometimes we have an idea of what we want or a direction we want to go in. But until you get really clear about what's important to you and what your intentions are behind doing the things that you do, a lot of times things, decisions will fall apart. You get all the other ego stuff out of the way. Like you were saying, like the traditional things that have been drilled into your brain, like this or is the expectations that you can't hold on to any longer. Right. And you get past that and go inside and say, but what works for me, which is, a question most people don't even ask themselves. Well, I think it's an important question. And I think anyone who lives life as an artist is being an artist is not just work. So a lot of, we get a lot of pressure as women, like don't choose work over traditional family life. Don't choose work. And I say, if someone says that to me, I'm not choosing work, I'm choosing art. And I know how important it is to my children 
that they are being raised by an artist, that they're being um, exposed to art in the way that they are, that they see that you can make a living being an artist, that they, you know, so there's value in that. But if you just define what you do as work, right. it's hard to make that choice. Yeah, I agree. And it is the difference, right, between job, career, and mm -hmm. lifestyle. And so mm -hmm. many artists that I speak to who have had that artist pulse going through their veins since they were little, it's a lifestyle. I mean, every, almost every choice we make, you have to assess and reassess and question, how is this going to fill me? Because my love for my daughter, my love for my husband, that's priority. But the passion of making art will never be replaced. It just will never be replaced. Right. And your family will benefit from that. My, I feel that my kids benefit by me being a professional casting director. I think that they get, you know, not everybody gets invited to go see, you know, Stella Abrera's first performance as Cinderella at, you know, at ABT. They've had experiences that they would never have had, you know, if I had either stayed home or had a regular job that I just shelved, you know, they see my passion for what I do. And I hope that they get inspiration by it. And, and I make sure to take time, you know, take, get the quality time in there and know that I'm there for them and I will stop everything for them. But they don't want me to, you know, they, they want the excitement. They want the art themselves. Do you feel like as a director major, you're able to use a lot of those tools into what you're doing now and a lot of those tools as a mother? Definitely, especially because directing school is so much about listening. And, you know, most of your first projects, you're the assistant director and your job is to listen, you know, and wait for that second where someone turns to you and go, do you have any ideas? And you have to be ready, but, but learn when is the right time and when is the time to create space for the artists you're collaborating with to discover for themselves rather than just feed them the answers. And the same thing happens in casting. You know, you have creative teams who maybe have just met during the casting process. So they are developing their own trust and their own collaboration. And you have to, or the fun part for me is to listen and make sure that everyone feels heard. Cause I have to, you know, everyone thinks casting is about who you let audition or who you choose. It's really not. Cat, being a casting director is about getting a team of people to pick one person. <laughs> Corralling everybody's opinions. Correct. Helping them see the qualities so everyone is excited about each decision. And this can happen like in from everyday player to, to the leads. And in order to do that and help people feel that they were heard that's hard. And sometimes you fail and sometimes you succeed, but that's always the goal. And I feel like directing school helped me one, understand the roles of the various people I'm in the room with, um, respect their process and sense when they are not feeling heard. That has been hard this year. I will say guys that that's been hard because we're not in the room together. That's yeah. harder to tell. And have you ever had the experience where someone came in and they auditioned and you knew they were just perfect for this and the director and the other parts of the creative team didn't agree and you turned the, turned it around and really made them see it? Oh yeah, definitely. 
bringing them back and giving them like secret information that they, you know, or figuring out what is it that they didn't see in this person realizing, oh, we see the role differently, you know, and my job is to fulfill this, this artist's vision. Or I see, oh, they're not seeing this, but I know this person has it. So therefore I know how to set them up for success in a very specific way for the Mm -hmm. callback or for, or what materials to show, you know, like we curate that. In this industry or your directorial class from North Carolina, what were what was the ratio between men and, and women? And even still today in the casting industry, what does that look like? Well, the casting industry is an outlier because women, it's a, it was started by women. You know, Marion Doherty was the first casting director and it is a historically women-filled, you know, female-led industry. Some people believe that is why we don't enjoy the same (laughs) benefits as some of our, you know, above the line um, peers, but we are working to change that. But no, it's actually quite, quite female friendly industry. School of the Arts was two seniors, the year I was there, two seniors and two juniors, because it's you, you, you have to go to the acting school and then your focus changes in your junior and senior year. And I would say, well, it was 50-50. We had a male and female director as senior. And and even to this day at School of the Arts, they they really look for women in the directing program. That's fantastic. And to know that you're behind the camera, behind the table, and you can actually articulate direction to an actor because you have worn the hat as actor and director and you're an extrovert, it kind of seems like the job was <laughs> tailor-made uh, just for you. It <laughs> felt like a natural, as soon as it was like, where have you been all my life? The yeah. first time I started being in the room with actor or opera singers and teaching them basic Stanislavski technique, because that was sort of, and it became clear to me, that's why I think Heidi hired me was even though I didn't have the opera experience, I had research experience because directing school is also all research and, and comfortable in the room working with performers. Do you feel coming home has kind of slowed your internal metronome or you just have that innately talk about nature versus nurture going back to that has being in this space, slowed that metronome a little bit or no, you were born to constantly work at a certain pitch. It slowed it naturally because it's just not, you know, the, pe- the people who want to engage at that kind of energy level are not around. I can't tell, Stephanie, if it's like a natural or it's just like aging. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's nature versus nurture. I don't know if there were things going on that I'd want to, I'd be fully engaged. Or it's just, it's also the pandemic year. So it's, I right. feel like Right. I've certainly gotten used to working from home and, and maybe when I now go to back to Los Angeles every week, it might feel more exhausting. Before people used to think, how do you do this? And I'd think, I get up, I get in an Uber, I go to Sacramento Airport. <laughs> like it's not actually that hard. I'd rather do that than live in Pasadena and work every day in Beverly Hills. Yeah. With the traffic that's a, and the, what, yeah. three hours in the car and yeah, traffic. That commute is no joke. Yeah. <laughs> I missed a play. I missed a play that I cast because, because of the tra- and I traffic. left at like five thirty for a play at eight o'clock and missed it. 
COVID is kind of that way. I feel like I've been stuck on the 405 a little bit. And, you know, every now and then you see a glimpse where you can change a lane, but to get to that destination, you don't know. You're getting all sorts of different updates from your GPS, but it's not accurate, you know? So, Yep, I've been stuck on the 405 for about 14 months now, people. <laughs> yes, it is. I think it is the big stop and you you have to reckon with your values with everything. Can I ask like what top 3 things did you learn about yourself during this pause? I learned that it's crucial that your partner is your friend because I have to say I'm so lucky to be with Jordan where we are. We have so much fun. We probably have too much wonderful. fun. He's wonderful. You know, yeah, he's, he's great. I think that I learned, oh, I might get a little bit emotional, that I work with one of the greatest human beings, I think, in the industry, Bernie Telsey. I think he is a in constant inspiration. If you guys think I have a lot of energy, I have like 125th of Bernie's energy and he is so supportive, kind, and just the greatest person. And, um, and I also learned that it's really important for me for my work to still, to, to actively put time in with working with the New York office together in conjunction. That's something we learned how to do because of the technology and we're not gonna lose it. I think we're more, you know, I love to see my West Coast hires collaborating. I loved collaborating, I did an entire TV series with an associate in New York that I had never worked with. And that cohesion of those different people has been, it's how I wanna work moving forward. It is so interesting that the three examples you gave us were all about relationships in a time that could be defined as isolating and, you know, kind of releasing a lot. And all three of yours were in regards to relationship. I find that so interesting and beautiful. I think relationship is the most important thing. You know, people sometimes say like, what's your mantra or what is your, you know, like what's your goal or intention in life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about adding people. For me, I want to add people to my life. So even my kid's dad, our relationship didn't work out. We're still very close friends. We spent Mother's Day together. His part, he's about to get remarried to one of my dearest friends. (laughs) Like we are all a village. I'm the same. My mother and stepmother are BFFs and travel the world together. Like, I don't think we have to let change, you know, trauma, like, define relationships. You can build, you can learn, you can grow, your relationship can change and still have value. I think it's a very, very dark situation. Like something very, very dark has to happen for me to not be able to come back to the table to say, let's fix this. When you're shifting your your relationship with someone, so let's say you work close with someone and it it wasn't a dark circumstance, but it was enough to give you pause. How do you create new boundaries and what sort of stuff are relationship enders for you? And, and what do you look for when you meet someone in order to say, okay, I'll let them in my life? Well, one, I, I, when I meet someone you know, engagement, you know, I, I don't love small talk as you might be mm-hmm. able to tell. Like, I want to get in there. I want to get into the humanity, the interesting points of view, opinions. I'm not afraid of someone's opinion. I embrace a different point of view. 
So I think the door is pretty open for me. Again, I look that's I feel successful every time I've added someone to my life that so that feels uh, true to me. In terms of conflict or something really bad, you know, I definitely feel protective if someone does something to someone I really care about. That's probably the biggest issue. But I will always, I think I will always come to the table. I think I will come to the table because sometimes you guys, I'm going to be on curiosity. Why would they do that? That's the Mm -hmm. thing that will make me crazy is when I can't figure out what is the person getting from this behavior and then I'm fascinated and I can become a little obsessed where I'm like, I would love to, I want to hear, I don't think, I don't want to be a gossipy person, but I think there's a way that gossip can be more stories. They're like, what are they? I want to know so that I can understand and repair. We're certainly going through something in this country where some values, some like morality and values are starting to like emerge that you're. I, frankly, shocked. I, I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that is pretty, I think I still would be willing to talk to someone because I want to know, but I, there is a little bit of judgment there for me because I just don't understand where they're coming from, you know, yeah. and it's, yeah, I just am trying to understand. And that is some members of my family. So that's a struggle, but I still, I usually love someone connected. So then I'm still like, uh, they'll be there, but let's like try not to talk about, I'm not a big fan of that. Like, let's not talk about this issue. That's a, that feels like a dare to me, <laughs> you know, and, then, and I'm like, well, how will we be after two glasses of wine? Will I still have the strength, you know, to, because I'm curious, why do they feel this? I think most behavior that's offensive comes out of a place of insecurity or trying to prove yourself or trying to front, you know, or fear, you're fearful. Fear, exactly. So I feel like if you can get to the bottom of that, and also you have to ask yourself, what's my problem with this person? That's right. Why is, why is what they're saying hurting me? Right. Because, because I don't think offended is really a word. Usually if you're offended, it's because someone hurt your feelings. Right. So let's be honest about why were my feelings hurt? Right. Because putting the information out there shouldn't be hurtful. How you translate it and adapt it as your own is what creates the pain. And that opens the door to the conversation, don't you think? Because you can say, look, I really respect you. So when you said that, because if you don't respect the person or care or their values don't line up, what they're saying doesn't really hurt you. You're just Mm -hmm. like, that's weird. And you can, and that's a natural barrier. I think, but if you really respect someone and they hurt you, that's what really gets you. So then maybe you can be honest with yourself and say, I only care because I care what that person thinks about me because I respect them. So I feel like it's not, then I think you can have a conversation. And now our five questions. If you could have a talent or ability, it does, it can be supernatural. It can be anything. What do you wish that talent or ability was? To sing. If you could go back, what advice would you give your teenage or 20-year-old self? What would you say to her? I would say, oh gosh, maybe you are enough. Still need that one over and over and over. No kidding. If you don't mind sharing, tell us something completely surprising about yourself. I'm such an open book. That's hard for me. Um, I would say that I'm a pretty good to darn good water skier. Oh. I went water skiing once in my 20s and I thought I looked 
so good. I mean, I was like, I am up. I am looking good. Look at me. And then I saw a video and I was like, oh my God, I will never go water skiing again. <laughs> my ass was sticking out. I was like, <laughs> my arms were all over the place. I was a wreck. And I thought I looked fantastic. It wasn't very, it was mine very is, my fear was I kept thinking, oh gosh, if I fall, I'm going to drown. So I didn't let go of the pole and I just followed the boat. And that's what was going to kill me is not letting <laughs> So that too is a life lesson. Sometimes you just need to let go and release. You mean after you fell, you just kept hanging on? Kept going, baby. (laughs) Skis had fallen off my feet. We had to circle around to get those. And I just was being dragged. Do you have a good luck charm or a ritual that you use at all for any, anything before a big opening or before a big movie premiere, anything like that? I always want to organize a getting ready party together because I feel like the kind of because I get some fear with that kind of a thing you know because you know you know everybody's going to be gorgeous and you have like a third of the money and a third of the like I don't work out you know like I'm trying to work out but like it's I never have and things like that and I feel like when you get a group of people together to like do your makeup and hang out like everybody's getting dressed and having a glass of wine or a bottle of champagne all shared I just feel like it gets you really excited. And at Telsey, we used to in New York for openings, we do that at the office where, you know, one of us senior people might bring a bottle of champagne and we'd be like, Bernie, at five o'clock, we're going to stop working and we're going to get dressed. I think that kind of just buoys you up to feel confident. All right. Last question. If you were a nail polish color, what color would you be? And what would your cheeky little name be? It would be like a bluish red. I think it might be called just shut up. <laughs> Cause I could use that advice sometimes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for this last hour. It was so great of you to say yes. And to trust us with your answers and your stories. Well, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And now here's what struck a chord with us. So what struck a chord with you, ML? Well, you know, what what I found really interesting about her, and there were a couple of things, but I like how she defines things for herself. she, She is really not easily influenced by cultural norms. Like she just decided, this is how I'm going to do motherhood. This is how I'm going to do my career. And I really admire that in a person because I think I'm more influenced by cultural norms. And I don't know if it's um, a generational thing because I don't know how old she is, but I kind of wish we got into asking her more about her childhood and her family because I, I'm i really curious. What kind of a household did she grow up in that made her such an independent thinker about her life? And the other thing that really struck me was when she talked about how she likes disagreeing with people because she sees it as a dare to go in deep and figure out how they think. And I'm not like that. When I disagree with someone, I back way off. I get very nervous. I don't like confrontation. I don't want to argue. I want everybody to get along. I'm the fix it girl. And that's, that was my role in my household. When people would yell or scream or argue, I was, Oh, I'll, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And I was the fix it girl. So For me to see that as a dare to go deep, I think is remarkable because I don't, I don't possess that. There was a real freedom to the way she would speak to us. There was an ownership 
which was really um, admirable as a, as a woman to listen to her. And like you said, you know, she made decisions. She made choices that she knew were it was going to frame her life in a certain way. And regardless of how it looked from the outside in, she kept using the words, you know, flipping the expectation. No, I, I can have everything I want at the same time. It's just the expectations of what that looks like to somebody else are different to what that looks like to me. And I thought, wow, what a succinct thought that she can even voice that, you know? Somebody mentioned to me, you know, are you these days when people are so in confrontation with each other and we're kind of all standing on our toes rather than our heels, you know, we're ready to pounce, we're, we're ready to either defend or deflect, you know, it's, are we listening to each other with just wanting to understand or are we listening to each other just wanting to respond? Mm. And she seems like someone who is truly listening to understand. And you can only do that. And I'm not saying that you're not comfortable with yourself. You're one of the most, <laughs> most self-assured and comfortable people I've ever met. But there was something about her that she said, no, no, I will always bring people back to the table. I just want to have that discussion. And I'm wondering if it came from her household or if it comes from her directorial experience or her actor experience or just the love of the craft, right? These people are essentially characters without lowering their stock. They're characters and you want to know what is your motivation? What makes you tick? Why are you responding that way? Similarly, it's like a picture within a picture within a picture. We want to know that about Tiffany, why are you doing that? What makes you tick? What makes you want to listen to these people more to get to the heart of who they are? But there, that comfort level was really just refreshing. And I found my shoulders going down, going, you know, it doesn't have to be, I'm an overthinker. I mean, maybe not in the moment, but when I go to bed every night, I relive my entire day and I think, what should I have done better? Who did I need to apologize to? How can I explain? How can I give this person my whole story so they understand why I said I, what I said or made the decision I made? And something as easy as, well, no, this is the way I did it. And if it's wrong, I can reassess and I can fix it with the next choice. That next choice is, is really kind of always there for us, you know? It's like the sun coming out every day. It's a brand new beginning. So there's a real freedom in that. And she certainly shared that with us. See, that's so interesting that that's how you respond because your shoulders went down and you found this comfort in hearing her independent thought and her just self-determination. And mine didn't, mine went up and I became very self-critical. Like, well, why can't you think for yourself like that? Why do you care what anybody thinks? And I start criticizing myself, listening to that really strong, really powerful woman thinking, how can I be better? Isn't that so funny how, the, how different minds work? That is interesting. The whole shoulder scenario, I think we can all relate to what that feels like when your shoulders go up or down. But yeah, the manner with which she answered just even with the five questions, what's a, a skill you wish you had to sing? That was it, period. <laughs> not going to elaborate, not going to apologize, not going to explain. Sing. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to, I've got to take a little bit more of that yeah. and just keep moving forward, knowing that if that wasn't exactly right in the moment, okay, I will, this is how I'll respond, reflect, try to do better, and then move forward. Yeah. 
Strong lady. Yeah, she's in charge. That's that's what you call a lady boss. Tiffany Little Canfield, lady boss. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. We'd like to give a big thank you to our assistant editor and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Ben Walding, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week. 